This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To learn more, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week, we dive into Peter Benchley's 1974 thriller, Jaws. So I don't know about Florida, but it's about 100 degrees here in Oregon. It's great beach weather. So I think uh, Jaws should be fun. Yeah, it's the summertime, uh, summer movie. I think it all lines up well. Uh, but you mean Meg, right? The Meg or Jaws? <laughs> Which one were you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we almost did the Meg, uh, but we took, a, we took a vote with our patrons and they, and they, they favored Jaws, um, which this is a lot of fun. Honestly, this is one of the books that I originally was considering when I was when we came up with the idea for this podcast. It was like Die Hard, Jaws, like certain ones that I knew were based off novels, but I'd never read. And I was really, really excited to do it. And I feel like I understand the movie a lot more now. And just the whole story, which you always get that that insight from reading the source material. Um, and this this definitely provided that. Definitely. It just it, it gives you a little more context to to some things, which I don't know. And I don't know if it was a good thing to get too much more <laughs> detail. Like, I, I think we're going to get into some of the nitty gritty. But I mean, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed understanding this story, like the sto- the history of this story and like how it's changed over time and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I'm with you, though. I, th- I have some trepidation about certain things. Um, but yeah, if it's your first time listening to the show, we're going to do this episode's going to be all about the book. We'll probably make some light movie comparisons because that's going to just be built into it. But then uh, next week we'll we'll talk about the movie and we'll make some more comparisons then. Uh, but this week's all about the 1974 novel by Peter Benchley. Um, I think for this episode we're going to start out by talking about the author a little bit and then the kind of the history and the story behind the story, uh, which I think is kind of interesting for this one. And then we're going to get into the summary. Uh, which we've decided we're going to go ahead and split into basically four parts where we'll do a brief summary for that section and then react to it and then we'll progress chronologically. So now you know how that's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to give any general thoughts before we get into it or do you just want to save everything for, for as it comes? I want to give like very, very general thoughts. Basically, okay, um, we've kind of, I don't know, we fell into the idea of doing this like monster summer, right? We've done yeah. We've done American Psycho, we've done Jurassic Park, we've done Jaws. Uh, so it just feels, it feels very in line with some of the other, maybe not as much with American Psycho, but very in line with like a Jurassic Park. I um, mean, American Psycho is a monster movie of its own kind. Uh, it's know, a very different kind so. of monster movie, but yeah, <laughs> it is. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's fun. This is just like, the, this is, I can see a young Spielberg seeing this material and being like, that's like going to be a fun over the top blockbuster yeah. like creating the blockbuster the modern blockbuster and i could just see because he he bought the the rights to the film right after the book came out just like he has done with the multiple books that we've covered for this one i i think it's it's definitely important and i'm sure we'll emphasize this throughout and throughout the movie episode as well but this book is a monster book it is not a book about sharks <laughs> not really right. it's like it's only a shark in like window dressing this shark does not behave like the real animals do um it's very much a, a you know a mythical creature almost you know 
It's it's the white whale uh, from Moby Dick kind of thing. There's I was getting a lot of more even more the so than the movie a lot of Moby Dick vibes and I haven't even read Moby Dick I just know generally kind of the idea and themes going on in it. Well, the critics the critics uh, agree with you. <laughs> we'll get into a little bit of that. The book is very dated, um, but I can also see I, I can see why it was a success. This is like one of those books that much like we talk about with Ready Player One and. Uh, I don't know, you could talk about with Twilight or other books like that that are considered kind of popcorn-y, kind of um, not very not very rich reading experiences, but they just really catch on with the, the general public. And this book was a runaway success even before the movie came out. Um, and I think people just like easy-to-read stories. Um, now, there, there's definitely some stuff about this that makes it not super easy to read, but um, I think it kind of falls in line with that, with that, um, you know, history of books that, that do that kind of thing. So if you're ready, then let's talk about Peter Benchley. Let's do it. So he was an American author and screenwriter who lived from 1940 to 2006. So he died about a little over a decade ago. Went to Harvard. So well-educated guy, but struggled with money. So by 1971, Benchley was doing various free- freelance jobs to support his wife and children. He would later declare that he was making one final attempt to stay alive as a writer, and his agent arranged meetings with publishers. Benchley would frequently pitch two ideas, a nonfiction book about pirates and a novel depicting a man-eating shark that terrorizes a community. This idea had been developed by Benchley since he had read a news report of a fisherman catching a 4,550-pound great white shark off the coast of Long Island in 1964. The shark novel eventually attracted Doubleday editor Thomas Cogden, who offered Benchley an advance of $1,000, leading leading the novelist to submit 100 pages. Much of the work had to be rewritten, as the publisher was not happy with the initial tone, which was much more humorous. It was almost almost like a satire. Jaws was published in 1974 and became a great success, staying on the bestseller list for 44 weeks. Steven Spielberg, who would direct the film version of Jaws, has said that he initially found many of the characters unsympathetic and wanted the shark to win. I'm a, uh, I, the, in the book, I agree yeah. with that. <laughs> uh, the, also, the oil on board painting created for the cover would eventually be reused by Universal Studios on the film posters. And I think it's, a, it's one of the most iconic book covers I can remember. Right? Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I think I like the, the book cover more than the movie poster. Like, yeah. I, I, think it, I think it's cooler. Yeah, I could see that. Um, originally, the the book had several different titles, um, including like the the Jaws of the Leviathan and stuff like that. And eventually, um, they were they couldn't decide on what to do with it. And uh, the editor at Doubleday said, "You know, the only word I like in this title is the word Jaws, so maybe we can just use that." <laughs> and that's how Jaws became came to be. And initially, they thought people would think it was a um, it could be a book about dentistry, or they wouldn't know like what it was about. <laughs> so that's why the oil painting like had to clearly evoke what this novel is about. Yeah. Um, so the cover became very important. The hardcover stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for 44 weeks, peaking at number two, selling a grand total of 125,000 copies. The paperback version was even more successful, topping the charts worldwide. By the time the film adaptation debuted, it had already sold 5.5 million copies domestically, a number that eventually reached almost 10 million copies. Worldwide sales are estimated at 20 million copies. So can you, I don't know if you know the numbers like this, but can you compare that to anything? Is there anything that like... I mean, it's a runaway bestseller. It's, 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 I mean, and this is in the seventies, you know, Mm -hmm. so a lot of these, you know, like the money is going to be a little bit different because of inflation, but that's a huge success. So despite the commercial success, reviews were mixed. The most common criticism focused on the human characters. 
one critic declaring, none of the humans are particularly likable or interesting, and confessed that the shark was his favorite character, and no one sus- and, and one suspects Benchley's also. <laughs> and then in the years following the publication, Benchley began to feel responsible for the negative attitudes a- a- against sharks that his novel engendered. He became an ardent ocean conservationist. Benchley writes, considering the knowledge accumulated about sharks in the last 25 years, I couldn't possibly write Jaws today. Not in good conscience, anyway. Back then, it was generally accepted that great whites ate people by choice. Now we know that almost every shark attack on a human is an accident. The shark mistakes the human for its normal prey. Upon his death in 2006, Benchley's widow, Wendy, declared that the author kept telling people the book was fiction. So I had heard that as well, that he kind of regrets where what this book did and how many great whites have died, basically because of the, you know, this made everybody look at them like monsters and not mm-hmm. like animals. I mean, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that he, he, I mean, although he may have been responsible for some of the, some of the things that went on and being, I mean, people I'm sure were afraid of great whites with or without his help, but he just kind of pushed it along. We both grew up in a time in which this movie was already steeped into society, right? Right. Like, it's hard to know what, what the fear of great whites would have been like without this film. Maybe another one would have come along and it, you know what I mean? Who knows? But I don't know. Yeah. It, by all accounts, people didn't really think about sharks much before this. Huh. It's cool to hear that he at least uh, wanted to like come around on it and was involved in conservation efforts and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Apparently he like gave tons of money and had a bunch of different foundations supporting wildlife and uh, ocean conservation and all that stuff. So, yeah, it is good to know, and it makes me feel a little better about reading the book, even though, you know, it's yeah, it, and you could argue it's caused a lot of harm. But his efforts to, you know, bring awareness to this and, and, and help all the sharks hopefully at least started to counterbalance some of that, some of that harm the book did. All right, so if you're ready, uh, I'll give a short summary of the first quarter or so of the book, and then we can kind of just react to that. That sounds good to me. All right, so in Amity, a seaside resort town in New York, A great white shark kills a young tourist who skinny dips in the open waters. Police chief Martin Brody orders Amity's beaches closed, but Mayor Larry Vaughn overrules him out of fear for damage to the summer tourism. Later, the shark kills a boy and a man not far from shore. A fisherman is sent by Amity's authorities to kill the shark, but disappears on the water. Brody and Deputy Leonard Hendricks find the fisherman's boat anchored offshore, empty and covered with bite holes. So I think it's interesting, but at the same time, I almost feel unnecessary, but I feel like we should, we're probably going to talk about, you were probably going to bring this up regardless, the economics that go on in the book, like the idea that they they give examples of people who are going to suffer and why and what dates people generally, the tourism starts to peak and the numbers behind it and why this town couldn't survive without it. So they really build up the idea that like without the beach, this town is like completely toast. Like it just can't survive on its own. It needs that tourism. And I felt like it was, a, there was a lot of that at the beginning, but ulti- I think it did also add that extra wrinkle that the film definitely touches on, but doesn't really make it clear. Yeah. I remember that being a pretty big plot point in the movie as well. Um, I, I thought that was a cool thing that was borrowed from the book that um, I think makes the translation, makes the translation to film really well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely more emphasized in the book, so we, we can spend more time on it, and we can get it more into you know corruption and things that's, like that. That's kind of what I'm talking about too. Is yeah, like that that mixed in with it. Now, I wanted to talk about how this book is written and in the omniscient POV, um, and also kind of head hops around um, in a way that I found a little bit distracting at times. Another criticism I would have for the way Benchley does this is he does something called info dumps. 
Um, and I wanted to see if this is something that you picked up on at all or, or, or if it bothered you or if you didn't even mind it. Um, so his, his, his habit is he'll introduce a character, like he'll introduce Ellen, or he'll introduce Hendrix, or he'll introduce the, the, you know, the newspaper writer later. And he'll just give you like a page or two of description about who this guy is or who this person is, why they do the things they do, what they believe. And it's just like a, just like dumping it on you, right? Like this is everything you need to know about this person. Okay, now let's move on. Um, now generally this is viewed as a bad thing, but I don't know, like how, did it work for you? I think that going back to the, my last thing about the economics and the idea behind it, I feel like that's that's kind of what my reaction to that was from kind of that without even realizing it was from that info dumping because it was it felt like, OK, here's the city. These are the things that you need to know. Let's hit all these bullet points. And then, yeah, like you said, the, the characters, too. I don't think that I necessarily noticed the characters as much as you did, it seems like. But but it was like that idea that like it just felt like a lot of shit that he was like really trying to make sure that you understood that I felt like could have been summarized or, or been like, like you got the point after a couple of sentences and then just went on instead of like having like characters reacting to their struggles of what's going on in the city and like kind of like subtly putting that in there. He was like, this is the town. This is what it needs to survive. This is where we are. Like, this is where they're at. And the shark is ruining that. I, I think the argument for it is that he is trying to get it out of the way so that the, the, like the, the action can kind of take off. Um, but I, I would argue, and people argue in today's kind of writing circles, that it's better to thread these kind of details in and have them come up organically and leave a little bit of mystery so that people can kind of experience getting to know a character organically rather than just being told. But, you know, I don't know. It's it, This is how this book is. It was written in the 70s. I don't know. But, it, I mean, like, that's it was pinged by critics for not having the you know not having great prose and i'm wondering if that some of this is is kind of the reason i don't know but anyway um so one of the cool things with the omniscient pov that i did like is that we can get the shark's point of view which was always fun and it reminded me of how the movie very famously puts you in the eyes of the shark right like the underwater camera and that to me is very reminiscent of those chapters where we start out with the fish underwater, right? The great fish and like all this stuff and the way it kind of reacts to splashing and, and can like pick up people getting in the water and all this stuff. He's also able to make this this shark a creep like a monster just based on how he writes like from that POV is like it's very instinctual. Like there's not a lot of like thought process going on. It's just like it sees this. It does this. This is where it is. It's interesting because it, it almost it almost contradicts what happens later in the novel in some ways, though, because in, I think I felt like in the final act of the novel, a lot of what we'd been being told by the different characters, especially Quint, about how this that sharks aren't smart, right? That they're just these like, you know, creatures of pure instinct and all this stuff. I felt like by the end, it seemed a lot more like this was an like e either an act of God or like a far more intelligent fish than that anyone was giving it credit for. That kind of thing. Yeah, that yeah, um, that is true. Because yeah, Quint near the end is like, it's the the first time they're out. Oh, it's a dumb shark, and then and then the second time it's you know we we see where it's like kind of learned or or is like is like being malicious on purpose. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. It's like the novel maybe can't really decide what it what it wants us to believe, or maybe it it wants to set up one thing and then kind of uh, subvert it later in the novel. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Something else that I did like about the omniscient and head hopping thing is I think it's probably in this first quarter here. Uh, we get this, we get Quint out with his current crew out on the water 
and it kind of like they they hear something over the radio or they have a newspaper or something and they're like did you hear about this crazy shark and quint is like a wise old sea sage and he's just Mm -hmm. like he's like oh we won't see that today and you're like what and he's like but eventually we will kind of thing eventually (laughs) i will He's like, he's so over the top that at first it's like too much. And then that kind of comes back around for me and becomes awesome. Yeah. Um, and he ends up being, he's probably still my favorite character in the, in the novel. The, with, with one large asterisk, I would say. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Definitely not necessarily signing off on everything he does, but yeah. um, he's just interesting. And even though he is, he's like, he's almost a caricature, right? Of this like old sea captain. But but I still like him. I don't know. He's like I would say I agree that most of these characters are unlikable, and Quint does some really unlikable things. But I still like him. <laughs> yeah, like, I can like people who do problematic things sometimes. How do you, how do you feel about Brody? I didn't like Brody hardly at all. Yeah, <laughs> and I really like him in the movie. But um, I found I found most of the people in this book to be like petty, small minded, um, often racist, sexist, kind of pathetic. And I felt like that was that was Brody was maybe not the worst example mm-hmm. of that, but he was he was like that, and he had a lot of he had a lot of like terrible feelings about his wife that yeah. was really hard for me to get behind. There's something for Bro- for Brody that really undermined him for me. In addition to the stuff you just mentioned, this whole this whole reason this call to action that he has at first seems like he wants to be this heroic cop who's like going out and doing this stuff, but then it all is like laced in guilt. And like wanting to be better than so and so, or you know what I mean. He doesn't have like even though he's doing these things that in the movie, because we don't get all of this other baggage, I guess he he is more heroic, and you you are pulling for him. And in this, it just makes it like it kind of undermines that and makes you feel like oh, he's doing this stuff for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I'm with you. Oh, one thing that I wanted to to bring up that that is kind of a it's kind of a kind of a little side story. But so when they first find the body of the swimmer on the beach, I think Hendrix finds finds her and then he vomits out of like disgust. Right. And then Brody comes up. He looks at the body and vomits as well. And then the like boyfriend or the guy who was you know with her, he, they call him over to come look at the body and identify her like on the beach, which seemed highly unprofessional to me. But they do it. And then that guy comes up. He looks at the body and then he vomits. And so we literally have three characters vomiting all within like close proximity to each other. And it made me laugh because uh, back when I was at Seton Hill in my writing group, that became an ongoing joke because we noticed that all of our novels featured people throwing up. And it's also kind of a trope in fantasy or just in a lot of like new writer fiction to have people throwing up. And that's something we learned about. And so we would always do like hashtag vat of vomit. And every time we, like somebody threw up in our novels, we'd hit each other with it. <laughs> and it just reminded me of that. It was like this guy needed like is it, it just made me think of the vat of vomit. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's uh it's like a crutch I think for a lot of new writers to try and inject like a sense of like things being just really viscerally affecting, and so you often just get characters vomiting when they see something, and in real life it doesn't happen that often. <laughs> that's true, yeah. And it's funny though because all of our novels had it. <laughs> anyway, that's my side about that. So we also meet Meadows in this section, who is this uh, writer who who ends up looking into the uh, to the mayor to find out about his corruption, right? And and he becomes a little bit important later, his relationship with Brody. 
Yeah, and then the mayor, who's pretty terrible, he's in it with the mob, and that's like his whole reason for wanting to keep the beaches open. That was like a big what the fuck moment for me. I was like, why? I was like, what? He went from being like, he was like hiding it all along. He's like hiding what his motives were, his people that he's working with. And I was like, oh, it's just going to be somebody extorting him. But then it's like, it's the mafia. And I was like, well, that's like. (laughs) Well, we're near New York, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, But anyway, so yeah, the boy and the and the and the old man got killed, and and that was that was pretty shocking, and it was um, it was brutal, right? And like um, there was a cool image of like the shark coming up from underneath the the boy in the raft, and all this stuff, and a lot of these shark shark attack scenes are just written like really well. I don't know, uh, really brutally, but also really compelling. Mm-hmm. So yeah, then next day uh, they have that guy go out to start fishing for the shark, and then sure enough, like they just see his like Brody sees his boat just sitting out there from the shore, and so they go out to investigate, and it's empty, and there's bite holes in it, and you know it's clear that something terrible has happened, and this guy has died. This is a, I really like this this section, this scene here where it's it's him and his partner, and they they go out. Well, first they see it from a distance, and he's like, "This is so weird. I've been watching him forever, and nothing's happening. Yeah. He's not fishing very well." Uh, and then they go out to check it out and yeah, there's bite marks and they find a tooth and they work together to like, he like holds his partner's feet and they like pull the tooth out. It just felt like, um, it almost felt like a detective story, like a, like a little section of a detective story. And yeah, I like that. Yeah. The shark tooth is a very cool, like kind of foreshadowing detail. Yeah. It's, it's cool. It works. Um, it is kind of weird that they just leave the boat there and it doesn't seem like they like call the coast guard. Um, they're just like, yeah, it'll be fine. And they just leave it out there and don't, and just kind of give up. And then, and then also like Brody calls the guy's wife and like gives away the fact that he's missing and that he's probably dead just on the phone with her. And he's like, oh yeah, that probably wasn't the best way to handle it. And I'm like, yeah, you think like, what the fuck, dude? Yeah. (laughs) Like he's, he's continually makes some really questionable decisions as a cop in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. He's got like he's any like we get his whole inner monologue, like his whole inner th- thought process, and it never really completely comes together. It's like he'll he'll be like, I I'm dreading this conversation that I'm gonna have with so and so, and then once the conversation like I, with I think it was the with the mother of the the little boy. Yeah, that, yeah. And he's that like, too. I was dreading dreading this conversation, and you would think like he would have as the police chief, he would have thought of some things to say. But then she like kind of comes at him, like attacks him for it being his fault that the beaches weren't closed after the first attack. And he just kind of doesn't know what to say and like flips out on her, even though he's the police chief. Yeah, it's I just remember all of it feeling a little bit. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm remembering Hooper from the movie being so much different, right? Like he handles all this stuff better and he's more likable. And they so I, I think that's something they did a good job with in the movie. Right. And this 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 version of Hooper is not or sorry, not Hooper. Brody. Brody. Yeah. I'm using the wrong name there. Retract all of that. <laughs> Brody. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of Hooper, though, he also gets introduced right here. Uh, we fir- He first meets him on the, on the dock. Um, that's somebody that Meadows uh, one, uh, called to, like, help out. He's an ichthyologist, I believe it was. He, like, studies fish, and he's he, he comes to talk to him. And, uh, and, yeah, this is the first introduction we get to him. We learn later that he uh, is a UF grad. So how about that? I heard, yeah, I was like, <laughs> oh, boy. And then the, his character becomes more and more, you know, reprehensible. And I'm like, oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> Yeah, it's he's very different from from movie version, right? Like yeah. he was really likable in the movie. Very, right? Like he's very like charismatic and and like fun. And then in this, yeah. he's kind of like a bummer, uh, adulterer. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that uh, here in uh, section two. But before we do that, we just wanted to t- tell you guys that we were guest hosts on uh, another podcast, Thirty Three Percent Pulp. 
we were on there recently and we talked about Touch of Evil, which is a classic film that I love. And when they asked us to come on to, to cover that film, I was like, absolutely, let's do it. Yeah, I'd never seen it before. You were you were very familiar with it. It's like this old noir classic, right? From, I believe, the 50s, I want to say. Yep, 50s. Orson Welles directed and he's in it as well. Yeah, as well as Charlton Heston and Brownface. With, so yeah, uh, <laughs> if you want to hear us react to that. <laughs> yeah, detracts from the from the movie a little bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, we had a lot of fun with them. They have a cool show that um, basically divides books up into thirds, and then each host will read one third of the book and then tell it to the others, and they kind of cover the books that way. They, they do a lot of old pulp novels, um, which this, this movie was based off an, a book called A Badge of Evil, I believe. So yeah, they covered that book, and I think they have three episodes about it, and then we're in what's called a companion piece that was about the movie. And that's coming out this week on 33% Pulp, so make sure to subscribe to them and, and check out that episode. All right, let's get into the next fourth of this novel here. Brody again tries to close the beaches while reporter Meadows investigates the mayor's business links to the mafia. Meanwhile, Brody's wife Ellen misses the affluent life she, she had before marrying Brody and having children. And she starts a romantic relationship with Hooper, and the two have an affair in a motel outside of town. Okay, this part. Didn't see it coming, really. <laughs> uh, it was, it's, I'm glad that it's not in the movie. I don't, I don't know. How did, I, I, for, I didn't like it. What, how did you feel about it? Yeah, I also didn't like it. Um, it's funny because I read that uh, this was actually, initially, he written a scene where this was uh, Brody having sex with his wife. And then they he changed it to be Hooper because he wanted to have it be more dramatic and be, I don't Drama, know. Drama, yeah. Yeah, and so, and I, I don't know, it just seems like kind of like filler to me. And it's to try and create tension between the characters when they're out on the boat, I guess. But you lose a lot of that. There's also like something to be said for that kind of companionship that you get in the movie, right? Like mm-hmm. I think Spielberg was smart to reimagine this relationship. Um, but yeah, just the whole thing was just, I don't know, it was also just like... There's some bad, weird stuff, right? Oh, like, no, it's like deeply problematic, in my yeah. opinion. It's very clearly written by a man <laughs> trying to imagine why women cheat, I guess, and like why this woman would cheat. And it's not to say that a person like this could not exist. I believe that there there could be. But she, it just like, it's this is the kind of stuff, I don't know if, you, I mean, like, I'm a part of like, I, I follow a lot of book Twitter and like writers on, on Twitter and all this stuff. So this was going around a lot in my circles, but I don't know if you saw it. But there's this whole uh, tweet someone put out, or it was like a paragraph somebody wrote on Tumblr or something. But anyway, and it's, um, and it's the whole thing is like men writing women. And then it's this uh, description of a woman who's like bouncing breastily down the stairs to like, like it's it's very like you know over the top just constantly talking about her own boobs and all this stuff right and it's just like making fun of how men often poorly write characters and are very who are very um obsessed with their own looks right and their own boobs like just like keep commenting about it and that was very much what i was getting from this novel like this is like a clear this is what they're talking about when they say that because she repeatedly like stares at herself in the mirror and basically like rates her looks admires her own breasts and just like it's all just like really weird women have repeatedly said like this is not what people this is not what people do this is very much just like weird male fantasy yeah it was it was rough dude and the part that really stuck out to me was getting into so like i'm not gonna kink shame anybody and like everybody likes what they like but it was it was the specifically the fact that this male male writer was writing female fantasies 
her yeah. what her fantasies were and specifically oh, yeah. mentioning rape and the way that it's brought up and all of the things that I was like holy fuck like this this can't like I couldn't believe that that, that was in the book I, I would love to know how this flew in the 70s now maybe just like feminism was like more in its infancy then but man I, I can't imagine people were reading this and going yeah this totally makes sense because she goes she says like yeah I have fantasies and he's like what fantasies and she's like oh normal ones and then he's like, oh, tell me. And then she's like, being raped. And I'm like, what the fuck? That is not a normal fantasy. What the hell? Yeah. Like, it totally surprised me. And then, yeah. And then, of course, like, they keep bringing up race. Like, they keep saying, like, black men being raped by black men and all this stuff. Yeah, and that was wild, too. That was crazy. It was, man. yeah, which is deeply problematic. And even, like, her fantasy when she describes it isn't even really a rape. It's, like, basically, like, a, a, a worker is at her house and, like, comes in and they end up having sex. And it's, like not even like a rape like she like wants it and so w- even when he describes it he's not actually describing a rape he's describing an affair essentially with a like a like a like a worker um but i don't know it's it's really bad and like you said like it very clearly is written by a man who thinks this is like a thing and wants it to be a thing maybe i don't know um it was gross honestly that was a part that i was like i'm glad that uh spielberg we went ahead and took this part out <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, this, but I did, I will, it's weird because I was of two minds. Like one, like a lot of that stuff was deeply problematic, but I also felt like it was a believable setup for an affair. The way that she like set up a, a, she wanted to meet him at a restaurant on the edge of town that was like too expensive to where like most of the people she knew would go. And, and, and kind of the way that they start talking and flirting and like building up to it, like that all seemed realistic to me. It just was also deeply problematic in in a lot of the like execution of it, I guess. Yeah, I was kind of expecting it to like she was like wanting this to happen, them to get together. And then like at the last second, she was going to like, like not go through with it. And then it went so much, so much further than I expected. (laughs) Yeah, no, they go through with it. (laughs) Um, And this is something that that for the rest of the novel, Brody... He like kind of knows this happened. Um, like he he's he weirdly is like obsessed with finding out where uh, Hooper was at that time. And I don't know. I mean, I guess this stuff's believable. If someone has a cheating spouse, that they like you know can catch on to stuff like this. Although we we do learn this is her first time doing it. So I don't he know. He also says like he's like coming into this kind of he's this is where he's like he's like I've never had to think about not trusting my wife before and just all of these things are starting to make him feel that way and yeah as it as it goes on more details are kind of hinted towards him and it kind of builds to well and they have a um dinner party she hosts a dinner party in which Hooper comes and that's like the first time they really interact and we found out also that she used to date Hooper's brother which I don't know I guess that is like kind of an in like why she finds him attractive or something because he looks a lot like the brother I guess but yeah, at that dinner party, they definitely behave flirtatiously, and Hooper gives her a necklace with a with like a silver and enc- you know encased shark tooth on, in it, mm-hmm. and it was like re- like I don't know, it's weird to give somebody's wife a gift like that. I would especially think, when for the first time hadn't there them. already been shark attack murders, so it's like yeah. people are dying, <laughs> and it's like you know what's cool shark shark teeth. Yeah, I don't know. It was weird, and then I guess I could. I think that is probably what makes Brody like suspicious, right? Because that was yeah. a weird thing to do. And then she was she was acting all strange because she wants to impress him, and she wants it to be a you know like this great thing. And then her her husband's being kind of a doofus and drinking too much and making fun of the dinner that she made and stuff like that. And I did find one the green the green uh, gazpacho or whatever they're talking about. You remember what I'm talking about? <laughs> 
No. They were like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. They're like, you smoke a little weed, and and then you you eat the gazpacho, and then you smoke (laughs) some more weed. About that. (laughs) And then like, just a lot of weird things. I guess this was like a '70s thing. So. Yeah, and it felt like she was trying to be cool in front of Hooper, maybe to impress him. And then like Brody was like, "What are you talking about? Have you ever eaten that?" Like. (laughs) Yeah, and then he's like, he's like, you know, I would arrest all of you, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty funny. All right. Quarter three. After a boy narrowly escapes another shark attack, Brody closes the beaches and hires Quint, a professional shark hunter. Brody, Quint, and Hooper set out on the Orca, his ship. Quint's methods anger Hooper when he disembowels a blue shark and then uses an illegally fished unborn baby dolphin for bait. Quint taunts Hooper as a rich college boy when Hooper refuses to shoot at beer cans with them. Brody and Hooper also argue, as Brody's suspicions about Hooper's possible affair with Ellen grow stronger, and at one point, Brody unsuccessfully attempts to strangle Hooper. They come in contact with the shark by the end of the second day at sea. Hooper estimates the animal to be at least 20 feet long and is in awe of it. Larry Vaughn arrives at Brody's house and informs Ellen that he is leaving town. He tells Ellen that he always thought they would have made a great couple, and she reflects on her life with Brody and feels guilty for her previous affair. So, uh, two things. I was really happy when Quint finally showed up because I felt like it was much further into the story than it felt like in the film. Maybe, maybe not, but I don't know. That's something to pay attention to because I feel like in the movie he kind of shows up late too. Because I remember he, like, I mean, he's in that meeting right? he like does his nails on the chalkboard. Such a great character introduction. I mean, it's so good. And <laughs> and that's like that's pretty. I don't know. That's probably at least halfway through the movie. Yeah, this felt like to me like they did like this. Everything didn't ramp up until you know easily the second half, if not the last quarter. Another thing is I found it really a really quick character turn for Ellen when she just like had this guy come over and then she thought about what her life would have been like with this rich guy and how she ultimately wouldn't have been very happy. And she and then she thinks about all these memories with Brody and then boom, she's what have I done and regretful. And that's kind of like that that B story is already kind of wrapped up right there. Yeah, it which makes it seem even more pointless. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's also, let's talk about that boy, right? So that boy takes a bet for like 10 bucks to go swimming out into the water. And then while he's out there, I thought for sure this was going to be the moment from the movie where it's a school of fish. Yeah. But it ends up it ends up being instead the actual shark. And the first time somebody gets in the water, the shark immediately comes after them. Like, yeah. I don't know. It seemed kind of, unre- I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's unrealistic, but that seemed especially unrealistic that literally the first person to go in the water is is immediately attacked by the shark. I thought it was pretty fortunate that Brody was like able to save the day. Yeah. Oh, there's also this weird moment where a guy apparently comes by Brody's house and kills his cat. Right. And like later we find out that it's mo- like a mafia thing. Yeah. <laughs> was- I was like, what is this mafia thing? Like this is so unnecessary. It could have just been like, uh, oh, he owes money to somebody. So it's, but instead they're like, it has to be violent. And like, mo- I-, I didn't feel like the mafia thing added anything personally. Yeah. It- yeah, I agree. It-, it was like an unnecessary wrinkle, right? Um, yeah. And the-, the cat, the dead cat was so weird. He like takes the body and goes over to Vaughn's house and like throws his dead cat at him. And, and mm-hmm. it's, I don't know, it's crazy. Oh, there's also this whole thing where Hooper was supposed to be with this girl named Daisy, but then it's like discovered, like somebody tells tells Brody that that Daisy's actually a lesbian, and so like this is impossible, and so this is how he also keeps catching Hooper and lies. Hooper has been like claiming that that was true. 
There's like this guy with his family at the beach who is all upset at the end of it because he couldn't see the shark better when it was attacking. Like he yeah. could barely see it. That was wild too. Yeah, he's and he's like very. They make him like very stereotypical too. And yeah, he was he was all upset. Like oh, I can't even see anything. Bro, just see a fin. And Brody's like, he's like, did you want this kid to die? Oh, we have to talk about the Quint with his baby dolphin as bait thing. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. So yeah, so I, I start off by saying that the um they set up like how the fishing is going to go, which I thought was cool. It was a clever way to do it. Um, they, they basically hook another blue shark um, and they show how the lines work and how the harpoons work and all the different options they have. And then they pull up this shark and then uh, Quint does his first like really, like I don't know, crazy thing. He, he disembowels the blue shark and then it starts eating its own guts. That was crazy. And I, I was like, how accurate do you feel like that is? Like, I don't know. I actually feel like that might be accurate. Yeah. I totally buy that. Um, and, 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 and I believe it's, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but like I have heard that it is true that they are kind of not mindless, but like very instinctual hunters who just eat things. And I, and honestly, like I think other animals might do that too. Like I don't think it's necessarily only the blue shark because they don't understand what that is. You know what right. I mean? Like humans do. Um, there's, there's just a different level. Well, I mean, that's why there's so many misunderstandings or, or not misunderstandings, but like there's so many accidental attacks on, on humans too. It's because sure. they, it's their instinct to, if they see something in the water and they're hungry, like that's, that's their, their main priority. But it's, it's not like they, they're of like ill intent, like they're not like wanting to kill, like some people yeah. make them out to be. Like a lot of it's, book. yeah, like a deep drive to just like hunt and eat and, and survive that way. And so it's like their survival instinct more mm-hmm. than it's like how like your your pets will eat you if you die in your house. You know what I mean? And like cats will do it like day one. <laughs> and they've like found that dogs will like wait a little while, like a few days before they'll do it. But like studies have proven that cats like as soon as you die will start eating you. And it's not because they don't love you. It's be- or whatever. It may be. I don't know. Maybe it is with cats. <laughs> but it's 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 just a. um it's just a survival thing. Like they don't think of it the same way that humans do, right? They don't. There's not all this importance based on um, life and like being, I don't know, a person. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard. It's like sad to think about, but it is just kind of the way the way it is, right? Definitely. And then yeah, so that's the first thing that was pretty crazy, and then <laughs> yeah, the next thing is the the baby dolphin that he has is like a snack. He's like, we got to give it the right snack to get this, to get this fish. And he shows him this unborn baby dolphin that he's like put hooks through and made into bait and uh really disturbing thing. He's like very, he, he has like no care for, for these law, all the, they get into like the laws that he's breaking and he's oh, just yeah. like, I and don't this care. Is, I'm a hunter. Yeah. He, those laws weren't made for Quint. Those laws were made for, you know, the Japs and stuff like that. <laughs> like it's he's really very, rough, and, but like, honestly, I like, one of the reasons that I don't hate Quint despite this, I still find him really interesting, is it just, it kind of fits him. Like, that's just how this guy would be. Yeah. Um, so it just felt right for the character as much as I found it reprehensible, personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can see that. I totally buy it. But, I mean, it's also, like, this is one of the reasons why this book is problematic and why it's created problems is I think that that perspective is shared by a lot of people of like, what's it gonna matter if I do this? What's it gonna matter if I'm throwing a bunch of cans overboard and garbage? Like, that's not what they're talking about when they make these rules. It doesn't apply to me. And that's the kind of thinking that everybody has. So of course, it's it. you take that on a mass scale and it's terrible, right? Yep. 
Yeah. Anyway, it's bullshit, but also, like, I get it from this character. And I think, like, if you had eliminated a lot of the other stuff from this novel that was so problematic, like, this would have seemed like a really clever character choice to make this guy... Because otherwise, this guy is, like, only awesome, right? Like, we just love him. Yeah. Like, he's this old, crazy salt guy who's going to take on this fish. Like, he's just awesome in every way, whereas this shows that he's actually kind of brutal and kind of got some backed up, fuck, you know, backwards fucked up ways of thinking. You can have characters that do bad things. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that also gives them, you know, two sides to their character. That way they're more dynamic. And, like, you don't want somebody who's... If he was just awesome all the time, yeah. then he would run away with the book and, and it wouldn't be quite as interesting, maybe. I don't know. It'd be interesting, too, because in this book where, like, nobody's likable, if all of a sudden Quint was just super likable, <laughs> right? Like, he'd really stand out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so so another thing that just before we finish this section out, they come back this this thing um the whole time they're doing the shark shark hunts, they come back at the end of the day and return to the island. And it always felt really weird like that was a really good decision to change that in the movie, right? Because it's like every time because it's like when when they're out in the water, the shark the shark could like is could be around at any time. They're also not at home in the comforts of their own bed. Yeah. And every time they come back, like that tension kind of evaporates, right? And has to be reestablished the next day. Right. And like people like, like literally every time something happens, like that's the end of one day and then they head back. And then the next day they're out again and like they kind of pretend like they didn't even do it. So I don't know why. It's like, why didn't he just edit that out? Maybe he just thought that was more realistic, you yeah. know? I mean, the whole thing where like he was paying him by the day, maybe that was so important to eventually to like keep that where he was paying him day by day, the $400. I guess so, yeah. Um, I don't know. So let's get into the final quarter here. Are you ready? Let's do it. So on the third day, Hooper wants to bring along a shark-proof cage. Initially, Quint refuses, considering this considering it a suicidal idea, but later relents. That day, Hooper goes underwater in the shark cage. The shark attacks the cage, something Hooper did not believe it would do, and kills and eats Hooper. Brady informs Quint that the town can no longer afford to pay him to hunt the shark, but Quint no longer cares about the money and resolves to continue. When they return to sea, the shark starts ramming the boat. Quint harpoons it several times. The shark leaps out of the water and onto the stern of the orca, ripping a hole in the aft section and causing the boat to start sinking. Quint plunges another harpoon into the shark's belly as it falls back into the water, but his foot gets entangled in the rope and he is dragged underwater. Brody, floating on a seat cushion, spots the shark swimming towards him and prepares for death. Just as the shark gets within a few feet of him, it it succumbs to its many wounds rolls over in the water and dies. The great fish sinks down and out of sight, dragging Quint's still entangled body behind it. Brody manages to paddle back to shore on his makeshift float, the lone survivor. Yeah, let's back up to when Hooper dies. That's the first thing in the shark cage, right? Like bringing the shark cage and then... Okay, so I feel like for his character, what he's done in this, I felt like I knew that he was going to die. I mean, I guess I didn't really fully know because he didn't in the movie. So I was thinking he probably won't. But when he got down there, I was like, this is so dumb that, like, there's no way he doesn't die here. And see, that's the whole reason why I think, I don't know. See, like, I, I um, in the movie, I felt like, of course, he's going to survive this because it, otherwise this is just too dumb. It's going to be harrowing, but he's going to survive it. And and so I was shocked when he died in the book because I wasn't expecting that. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I knew there were differences, but I didn't remember exactly what they were. And this is a big difference. I felt like it was um, just, like, with him having, like with the cheating and with all the other stuff that yeah. he had with Brody, it felt like if he did die here, it leaves Brody with more baggage or something else that he wasn't, it wasn't fully resolved, but it's not an issue at one. It wraps up the story 
it wraps up a story in a neater bow for for Brody because then he it's basically over and then Ellen's back home and she's you know come back around on their relationship. We should point out also that at this point Brody's kind of confronted him about it and it hasn't been completely confirmed, but it seems like he's figured out that this is something that happened. Um, maybe not a hundred percent, but he like deeply suspects it. So uh, another thing that this made me think is that these two characters, Quint and Hooper, both die for basically for their sins mm-hmm. and um, and the sins regarding the shark in particular. And I think um, I think Hooper now I, I would argue this isn't a sin, but I think the book is telling us his appreciation for the beauty of this creature and not viewing it as a monster is what gets him killed. Because we see when the first passes him by, instead of hitting it with this like boomstick thing to kill it, he reaches out and runs his hand along the side of it, right? In this very like what you normally see in like a nature documentary. And he's having this moment and then it turns around and kills him doing, you know, like parting the the cage and everything. And to me, I was like, that's why he died, right? Because like, he, he didn't have the right attitude about this shark. Similarly, when Quint dies, um, his his is for the way he feels like he knows this shark, he knows what it can do, and he he it's like a dumb shark. And like his is his almost his hubris for like thinking that this is just another another shark when it's actually something like special. Yeah. I think Quint dying should happen in both versions. Um because yes. it kind of it's like he's he's that old salty salty dog who's who's been through everything. And uh just like you said, like his hubris and it's like this is where I think the parallels of Moby Dick come in. And oh, it's yeah. like, but for the Ho- the Hooper thing, I think I think you're right. I think it is like there's this appreciation, and and it's the author saying like, don't get gullible now, like you or don't don't you know don't get too comfortable. And but also the cheating thing is his I think is his like ultimate sin, where it's like sure. he's not redeemable to the audience. So it's like if you kill him off, there's like a little bit of like, oh he's dead now. So it's kind of do we do we almost start to think about forgiving him for the stuff that went down because he's dead or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, so two thoughts. Uh, I guess first about Quint. So um, from, I haven't read Moby Dick either, but um, apparently the way that Ahab goes like goes down is almost identical to how Quint really? goes down in this book. Yeah, in the book. Um, in the so, book. Yeah, I yeah, in the book. Yeah. yeah, being dragged, being dragged underwater by a line. I didn't know that. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So apparently, I'm a spoiler for that book, but whatever. <laughs> I mean, that's it's an old book, and maybe we should have read it by now. <laughs> it's our own fault. <laughs> um, at some point, we might for the show. Who knows? Um, but 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 yeah. So that's interesting, and I can definitely see a lot of Ahab in in Quint, and I think also him dying. You talked about how he had to die, and I agree because he's also the safety net for for Brody and for the and for the novel in general. Like he is, people trust that he's going to get the job done. Right. And so when he dies, it creates a new situation where there's no like that's there's a vacuum and the, and the shark has won, essentially. Right. Um, and we see that in the movie as well. Yeah. But do you feel like it was it was earned, like, do you well, I guess not earned, but do you feel like it was delivered upon? Do you feel like? Yeah. That's no, the thing I agree. For me, is I, like it's like, yeah, it wasn't as well in, in the book as it was in the movie because it was it happens very close to the end, like literally in the final pages. Yeah. And then the book's over. Well, for me, it was just that like they had this moment to have Brody save himself or Brody do some sort of action after the safety net was gone, and there was none of that. It was just succumbing yeah. to the wounds. And yeah, you're right. Said. Yeah, you're right. It was like he said he 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 had that set up, and then he didn't really do anything with it. Yeah, you're, that's true. Oh, well, the other thing I wanted to mention was so after uh, Hooper dies, they go back to town, and 
Brody tells Ellen that Hooper got killed by the shark and she like doesn't care. She's like, she finds that she, she's like, oh yeah, I'm sad that he died, but I'd be just as sad that anybody else died. Like, I just don't care about him. But that's like in her head, she's saying that, right? She's saying all this. Yeah, like, she doesn't say it, yeah. but she, yeah, in her head, she's thinking all of that. And I don't know. I thought that was kind of fucked up. Definitely, right? Like, she was like, like I just used him for the what I needed him for and stuff. And I was like, okay, I guess. Like, I didn't realize that you were, like, I didn't feel like that earlier. And even if that's true, the guy got eaten by a fucking shark. Like, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> It was, it, it was that I couldn't believe they were going home to tell everybody that the fucking shark ate a guy in a cage and then they're going to go back out just the two of them the next day. Like that was so unbelievable to me. And, and it works so much better in the movie because they have no choice yeah. when that happens, you know. How about the, uh, the, another pretty little bow that was put on the movie was the newspaper that came out near the end where it was like Hooper's dead and he sacrificed himself to try to save us and, and all of this stuff. And then they're like, and also... Since Brody had been seen by the public, You're saying this, in the book, I'm sorry, yeah, in the this, book, this yes. is all in the book, yeah, yeah. Hooper, Hooper's dead, and and Brody so far throughout the book had been seen as this guy who it was his fault that all the attacks were happening. It's his fault that he didn't close the beaches. His fault, his fault. And then the newspaper article comes out to make the public on his side to wrap everything yeah. up nicely, and it wraps up the the Meadows like plot line. Yeah, like I guess why he was important because he ends up writing this this thing and shows it to him before the day before he goes out that he's gonna be yeah he's gonna be treated like a hero now. But yeah, there was very strong Ahab feelings when Quint's like, I don't need money. I'm just going to do this because I have to best this creature. And he was he turns very Ahab in the end if he wasn't and already. Honestly, that's for me, it's less of a critic. OK, so it's very similar, but like it's fun, right? Like I like that. Yeah, because because it's a well like obviously because of Moby Dick, it's well written and people like that. So they decided decided to use that again and, and it works again. Yeah. And I thought it was fun. I like it. Yeah, I think. um I think Spielberg was smart to change some of the more overt references. Oh yeah, to how he, you know what I mean, like change the way he dies. Him wanting to do it for stuff. free because he needs to best yes. this creature. Like that's the part that I really like. Yeah, I like that too. I agree, and 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 I think there. I mean, you can definitely draw all these Ahab comparisons in the movie as well. And uh, yeah, I think it works. Uh, it's 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 he's that's become like an archetypal character in our in our fiction right now because of because of the, how famous that novel is, and you know maybe it was before I don't know. But yeah, I think it, I think it works. So throughout the novel, they he pulls out this rifle and repeatedly shoots at the shark with this rifle, and I found this really silly. Like, I don't is this a thing people actually did? I don't know because supposedly Peter Benchley researched like shark hunting and stuff. I believe it. I believe that. Why not? It's it's a long range weapon. Like you don't have to get close to yeah, the teeth. No, well, the reason is the way light refracts refracts in the water means that the the bullet, when it hits the water, first off, is going to immediately lose a lot of its speed, um, but it all, and go off in all wonky directions. But also, we we can't. It's really hard to hit something in the water because of the 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 refraction of the light mm -hmm. makes it seem to be in a place where it's not actually not. And so, it's almost impossible to shoot something that's underwater. You have to get I, very lucky. I never I never saw him shooting the rifle as him shooting it into the water. I thought that they they gaffed it and pulled it up to the boat, and then he was shooting it. I think he does both. Because like shooting it in the water, I agree with you, is ridiculous. That would never work. Well, he does that because I know for a fact he does that when um, when Hooper's in the cage, he sees these like bubbles as there's like shots getting rained down at the as a shark as it's like circling around. Yeah. Well, maybe he's just trying to do anything at that point. He's panicking and just trying to shoot the yeah. water. I don't know. Maybe I agree I don't that know. the light. You know. Like you said, the light refraction would have messed it up. And then bullets, like, I think Mythbusters did a video where if they shot, a, like, a 50 cal rifle into a pool, 
and yeah. like by like 10 feet or something it was like not only did it it would never hurt anything but it also yeah. like flattened the bullet yeah uh brief aside i'm also writing a novel right now that takes place underwater and has a lot of underwater firearms and so i've done a lot of research into this and there are there are firearms that fire underwater but they're specifically designed to do so mm-hmm. um and you know just a regular old rifle shot from the you know shot from a boat is not so uh, yeah yeah in, in general like i i while i bought some of the methods like some of it felt like fantasy to me like the idea that he'd use a dog chain as like a line just seemed really i don't know like i just don't know if i believe that like i don't know if i believe that a shark would hit that but maybe i don't know i i guess i, I guess i guess i'm not completely confident in saying that that wouldn't happen but yeah i don't know um, maybe uh, if maybe with the right bait or, I don't yeah know. and the the it's, it goes back to the idea of like he had to have this really special treat the baby dolphin, which we didn't even like talk about much, but like that was really fucked up, right? Crazy. And and um, yeah, yeah. I guess we did talk about it, but but still, it's like. But he like cuts it open before he throws it out, and it's like really. And, and is that how really is that better up. than like a fucking mackerel or something that you attach to a hook? Like, why is that so much better? Like, I don't know. It's kind of silly, right? Yeah. Because we've already proven these sharks will eat literally anything, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. come on. Yeah. Um. Oh yeah. Then later, there's a fucking. He has a sheep. I forgot about that. He has a sheep that he uses as bait too. And like, I thought for sure we were going to get a description of this, of this sheep, but like we actually, maybe he spares us some of the descriptions because we never really get a, a full description of the sheep. I think he might cut its belly open at some point. I think so. Yeah. Other than that. Uh, it it kind of <laughs> made me flash back to the Jurassic Park with the goat. Oh yeah. <laughs> Another Spielberg movie. There you yeah. go. <laughs> so yeah. What did you, uh, what did you think of the final confrontation with the shark in general? Like how did, how did it strike you compared, maybe compared to the movie? Like, well, I don't want to ruin the ending of the movie because I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about with that. But sure. the ending of the book here, like just knowing how the how the movie ends, it just wasn't it, it, like I said, there's this vacuum that's created by by Quint dying. And like there was it seemed like something was going to happen. And I was like, oh, cool. Something different might happen. Then I actually knew that that the ending was was different. Like I didn't know exactly how it ended, but I remember hearing that multiple times that like, oh, Spielberg changed the ending to make it better. And yeah, so, like, and well, and it's ex- more explosive, right? Right. And so it's like I, and so I didn't, I didn't really. As I was reading it, I was like, I wonder how they're actually going to wrap this up. Like he's like, it's got a bunch of harpoons through it, and it's coming straight at him. What is he going to do? Is he going to like use the chair or something? And like, I don't know. I thought maybe there's something to be done there, and then it was just it mm-hmm. just died, and I was like, oh, that was it. A, just dies. It wasn't very exciting. Yeah, I did like the final scene or imagining of like when he looks under the water and he sees quint's body getting dragged down below by the by the fish Mm -hmm. that was cool and like i i didn't know at the time that it was exactly how ahab dies apparently but i when i just saw it oh that's a cool light that's a cool visual i guess you know yeah and like metaphorically like him being dragged down by the fish and like all this stuff like he goes down with it and he does kill it in the end i guess um so quint does kind of win or they they each beat each other i don't know yeah so this novel and the and the and the movie as well don't really paint great whites in a very uh, very good light. So I'd like to finish up by by give, sharing some cool facts with you about sharks and about great whites in particular. That sounds cool to me. I have a, I have something kind of interesting too. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, so let's save that to the ver- for the very end though. Uh, but first, I just wanted to thank a patron of ours, a new patron who is actually my mother in law. Uh, she signed up for the ten dollar option. So thank you to her. Shout out to her. Thank you. We really appreciate that. So another way you can support us is by leaving a rating and review on iTunes or 
Google Play, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, and if you'd like to reach out to us, we're on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ink to Film on all three. We also have a Gmail account, Ink to Film at gmail.com. If you'd like to send us uh, your thoughts on this movie, on this book, um, and yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We wanted to thank 33% Pulp for having us on recently. Make sure you check out that episode. And also thanks to Spark and Optimistic for the use of our intro and outro music. Yeah. All right. And make sure you check out that episode with 33% Pulp. I, it was a lot of fun, and I hope uh, our listeners will, will go give it a listen. Um, but yeah, I'm ready. You ready for some shark facts? Give them to me. I need them. Okay. So early fossil records show that the great white sharks have been swimming in the Earth's oceans for around 16 million years. And though some scientists believe that it might be much longer than that. Well, were they Megalodon back then? The Meg? <laughs> there was some fun talk about Megalodons in this book. We didn't yeah. mention that. Uh, they really like Hooper has like a long thing where he's talking about how cool Megalodons are and how he want he like wants to see one really badly. <laughs> I was fascinated by Megalodon growing up and I had like I had like half of a Megalodon tooth. Yeah. Like fossilized. Oh, really? We should have done the Meg. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one day we will do it if it, if it if it goes on to be popular. Who knows? Um, so pr- scientists previously thought the life expectancy of a great white shark was around 25 years, but a recent shud- study shows that their life expectancy could actually be around 70 years. Ah, Jesus. And the largest great white shark ever recorded in the wild was estimated to be 26 feet long, more than half the length of a basketball court. That's ridiculous. That's the that's so massive. <laughs> um, another thing that kind of shoots holes in this movie: once they have fed, great white sharks can go a whole three months without having to eat another meal. Wow! Utilizing a practice known as spy hopping, great whites will often peek their heads above the water to look for prey. I thought that was really cool. Nice. And we actually kind of see that in this book. There's yeah. a couple times where it kind of like pops its head out and smiles at them, <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, maybe, maybe it's maybe it's spy hunting or whatever. So another one, they can they can jump in a practice known as breaching when they catch and kill prey, and sometimes they can get as high as 10 feet out of the water. They have been known to accidentally breach onto the decks of boats. It's crazy. This is the stuff that when you see it in nature documentaries and slow motion and stuff, the breaching that they it's do. It's crazy. It's unbelievable that yeah. they're able to do that. And it's, it's I mean, you get to see those creatures yeah. in the air yeah. in all their glory. They can go up to 35 miles an hour swimming, and their breaching speeds can reach like 25 miles an hour straight up as they hit, as they hit, hit the water, right? Or hit the surface, I guess. Um, it's it's wild. And, and yeah, there's some great, great shots of that out there. So look that up if you haven't seen it. So in one of the more uh, disturbing facts I found, uh, baby sharks practice ophagy, a behavior where the largest, strongest pups will cannibalize the other pups inside the womb. I feel like I knew that. I feel like I'd heard that before. Yeah. That's pretty like, crazy. That's some crazy like uh, monster shit right there. So you can see why there's, there's some misconceptions about these animals. Um, most people survive great white shark attacks. Typically, after making their first bite, they realize it was a mistake and they leave. I'm pretty so, sure most people survive most shark attacks. I yes. think statistically most people survive. Now, shark attack, uh, great whites do statistically um, have the m- highest number of human at- like shark attacks, but... Even them, most of people survive them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is another, I think, just kind of a cool factoid. Um, great white sharks cannot be kept in captivity, unlike other sharks, because they will become disoriented and will stop eating and will continuously run, run into the aquarium walls until they die. And scientists don't know why this is. Fascinating creatures. They just can't be contained. It's really, it's really cool, right? <laughs> That's really cool. All right. What was your, what was your thing? 
So mine isn't as like as specifically backed up in research, but I always found it <laughs> fascinating that that people. I think there's a very, very small percentage, if any, of people who've seen sharks having sex, like physically mating. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've re- yeah, I've read that. I, I, it's so fascinating. Like how, how like even in, I mean, I guess a lot of the times they don't do well in captivity, but just thinking like that, it's almost never seen. Um, and when seen, it's like somewhat violent. Like there's biting yep. and and latching on involved. Like it's that's. I just I don't know. It's always it's always been something that I've been thought was really really interesting to so think you like about. thinking about shark sex. Is that what you're telling yeah. me? Yeah, I mean that's my thing, right? You stay like, up at night thinking about great whites. Yeah, just mating. How do okay. they do it, right? <laughs> Where do they do it? I just is it in the ocean? A little bit more about you. <laughs> uh, all right, I think that's a good place to end it. <laughs> uh, we'll be back next week with our movie episode, um, which I'm really excited about. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, absolutely love it so i'm really excited to watch it again it's a perfect summer movie so we hope everybody joins us with maybe rewatching it and then and then checks out the episode yeah i can't wait and until then i'm luke and i'm james see you next week <laughs>